Welcome everybody to our PPD podcast, where we'll be discussing topics that are important to oncology drug development today. I'm Albert Tsai, Vice President and Regional Medical Officer for PPD Biotech in Asia Pacific. Today, I'm here with two of my colleagues who are also members of PPD's Adaptive Design Working Group. Dr. Dirk Ritzma, who's Vice President of Oncology Product Development, and Jurgen Hummel, Senior Director of Statistical Science. They both join me here today to not only discuss the benefits of innovative trial design, but also, we hope, to clear up some common misconceptions about adaptive trials that may be holding back some companies from implementing these designs and really gaining the benefits they provide. So, Dirk, Jurgen, the reality is that there are many oncology compounds and novel treatments under development today. And yet, you know, if you look at the statistics, very few actually make it to market. In the U.S. alone, for example, the oncology products that enter phase one trials, really only around 3% eventually receive U.S. FDA approval. So how can oncology clinical development teams facing these increasingly complex scientific and operational challenges beat these odds and make headway in this space? I'm sure, Albert. There's a lot of uncertainty in early drug development, uh, for example, about the dose, the slope of the dose response curve. And traditional trial designs are rigid and require you to decide many important aspects before you really know much about how the new drug is even behaving in humans. And as a result, we typically treat many patients at suboptimal or subtherapeutic dose levels. Alternatively, you could select an, uh, an adaptive trial design and an adaptive trial learns from what is happening within the trial, which is usually more efficient. So I'm generally in favor of adaptive trial designs over rule-based trial designs. Right. So can you give us some examples in, in practice of how this works and where you've seen the benefits? Yeah, a couple of examples, Albert. It's important to get to the optimal dose and schedule early in development. You don't want to end up at the end of phase two you know, with questions about whether you had actually picked the optimal dose and schedule. Uh, so you really don't want to have any regrets at that point in time. And another example, I think, is the ability to use adaptive designs in basket trials, for example, to do signal detection and only to advance drugs that have sufficient probability of success to full development. So maybe I could turn to Jürgen now. And, you know, Jürgen, with so much benefit in these innovative trial designs, Really, what's your thought behind why has adoption of these adaptive designs been so slow? Thanks, Albert. It's an interesting question. I think we work in an inherently conservative industry, and our sponsors typically continue doing what they're familiar with. So companies tend to worry about regulatory acceptance of innovative designs, where in reality, our experience is that regulatory agencies encourage them and welcome dialogue with them about those designs. And a good example of that is that the FDA, for example, issued guidance on adaptive design and master protocols in oncology just over a year ago. And they also have going a pilot program on complex innovative designs in order to allow them to share that experience with the wider industry in order to encourage others to see what is possible and acceptable. Right. Dirk had mentioned this earlier, and that is one of the challenges that oncology drug developers face is failure to correctly identify the maximum dose, right? So Jürgen, can you explain the CRM design and, and compare to traditional 3 plus 3 design and really help us understand how the, the CRM design can help us avoid this mistake? 
Of course. So let's start with the 3 plus 3 design, which has been around for many decades. So basically, you recruit patients in cohorts of three. And if you don't see any dose-limiting toxicities or DLTs, you go to the next dose level. If you see two or three of those DLTs, you then stop and declare the previous dose as the maximum tolerated dose. Where it gets interesting is in between when you see one out of three patients developing a DLT. You then recruit another three patients and then you look at the total number of DLTs over those entire six patients. So if you've got one DLT out of six patients, you then continue to escalate, but you have two or more, you also stop. So as you can see, it's a very simple design, but that comes with challenges in the sense that you only ever decide your maximum tolerated dose based on the last dose in cohort. And therefore, all of the data that you've collected beforehand are completely ignored in that final decision. Also, you have no ability to re-escalate once you've had to stop. So those limitations are basically what led to the development of the so-called continual reassessment method or CRM design, which is basically a Bayesian design. So you collect contextual evidence beforehand, which we call prior. Um, that is then combined with the observed data during the study in order to generate the updated evidence, which we call posterior distribution. And that is updated after every cohort through statistical Bayesian modeling. And therefore, the model chooses the next dose level as one that is predicted by the model as the highest safe dose based on the data collected so far. Well, that's, that's an excellent explanation, Jürgen. Thanks. But, you know, that being said, how can the CRM shave off time then? Yeah, so our experience is that you can save significant time for the overall study duration because on average, you will require fewer patients in order to get to what is typically a better and more accurate estimation of that maximum tolerated dose. And also you'll be able to tailor that dose escalation much more to a specific scenario because there is not just one way of doing it. So you can take into account, for example, existing information that you have on the compound or maybe from similar compounds in the past, and that information can guide you through the dose escalation. Another important aspect is that you can tailor dose escalation rules based on simulations that you do upfront in order to see what works best in a particular scenario for a particular compound under several scenarios. You also have more flexibility on the cohort size. So we often use single patient cohorts during the initial dose escalation phase. So we get us through that sub-therapeutic dose that Dirk mentioned much more quickly. Dirk, can I sort of turn over to you and ask you, you know, if you give some examples of really what does this look like in practice? Sure, Albert. One example that comes to mind is a very nice one. A company asked us to perform a a standard 3 plus 3 dose escalation study for them. But the available information actually favored a Bayesian uh, adaptive design. And what happened in practice was that this trial did a single patient dose escalation right into the pharmacological zone of interest. And we ended up in probably in that zone six to nine months sooner than we would have if we were using a 3 plus 3. Plus, I think we had a best, better estimate of the maximum tolerated dose. So in practice, this design shifted a lot of patients from the dose escalation phase 
which is less informative, into the pharmacological zone of interest. Um, and because of the larger number of patients that were then tested in that dose range, by the time we had the optimal or recommended phase two dose, we also had a lot of information about activity, uh, early information of activity of this drug in the population. And of course, once you have that, the value of the asset is actually significantly increased. That's great, Dirk. Thanks for that excellent example of really, you know, how adaptive design can benefit uh, oncology developers. So why don't we just quickly move on, actually, to talk about some of the misconceptions that we hear from some of our oncology uh, uh, developer uh, uh, partners and colleagues out there that may have affected their decision to adopt CRMs. So why don't I just start with some of the misconceptions and I'll ask either Jurgen or, or, or Dirk yourself to give us some feedbacks or, you know, give us a fact check there, okay? So misconception number one, CRM is operationally different compared to a three plus three. Jurgen, do you want yeah. to take that? I'll take that one, yeah. So operationally, the CRM design is really very similar to the 3 plus 3 design. We still recruit patients in specified cohorts, mostly cohorts of three. Uh, we collect dose-limiting toxicity information. And once we have all of the dose-limiting toxicity information, we then determine what is the next dose level to dose at. Second misconception, determination of next dose level with the CRM design delays study conduct. Thoughts? Okay, I'll take that one as well. And, and I've heard that comment a few times, particularly from people who don't have access to the right software. But it's not true if you have the right software and if you plan ahead. So within PPD, we have very powerful software. We use facts. We typically perform that modeling within one working day after all of the DLT information is available. So really that delay of a maximum of one day is not significant in the greater scheme of things. Okay, here's another misconception that we often hear. The dose recommendations from model-based design cannot be overridden by clinicians. So Dirk, that sounds like a, a question directed for you though. Yeah, thank you, Albert. Uh, no, that's, that's incorrect. The CRM provides dose recommendations. Many companies actually uh, use a safety monitoring committee to review the recommendations from the CRM before they implement the next dose level. So here's another sort of question that we've always encountered, and that is incorporating the CRM design into study or synopsis or protocol will actually delay the study start. Jürgen, what do you think about that? Okay, that is potentially true, but only if the study protocol is already near final. Um, if it's still at an early stage, then the relevant simulations which we need to perform can be done in parallel. Yeah, and I would just like to add to that. The time required for that, if you are doing it in parallel, is short compared to the time gained, even if you only reduce the number of patients required by a handful. So, okay, Jürgen, Dirk, here's sort of the last misconception that I was hoping that you guys could give us some thoughts on, and that is the CRM design is cost prohibitive. What do you guys say to that? Dirk, do you want to start off first? Sure. I think... You know, one of the most expensive things in drug development is the passage of time. And so anything you can do to reduce that is, is bound to have a large impact. And then you can add into that the potential savings. Um, again, even if you only enroll several fewer patients, you know, the cost of patients generally in oncology trial is quite high, and that would also lead to significant savings. Right. That makes a lot of sense. 
So I think we've cleared up some of these misconceptions. So thank you, Dirk. Thank you, Jurgen, for giving us your thoughts on these misconceptions. Do you guys have any sort of closing thoughts? Yes, uh, Albert, I, I certainly have some comments. I mean, given the low success rate overall of drug development in oncology, we, we just have to manage a lot of uncertainty. Do we have the optimal dose and schedule for full development? Is there sufficient activity? Is the activity limited to certain subsets? And it can be quite daunting to sort all that out efficiently. I was fortunate to attend a lecture by Professor Don Berry uh, many years ago now and realized that Bayesian methods offered powerful tools to manage uncertainty. It certainly changed the way I look at drug development. I agree, Dirk. And, and what I feel that one of the things that has really helped us to implement these methods in today's world are the tools that we have available. We did not have such powerful software available 10, 15 years ago to allow us to explore upfront how a study would look under many different scenarios. So that we're then not surprised about what's happening on the study. And we can basically plan the study with the benefit of hindsight in mind. Well, this has been a very interesting discussion. So I want to thank Dr. Dirk Ritzma and uh, Jürgen Hummel very much for your time and for your contribution. I hope this discussion has been helpful for our listeners as well. I want to thank our listeners for your time and your interest. And please visit our website, ppd.com. Feel free to contact us and we'd be happy to schedule a virtual meeting with your team to discuss the challenges of your upcoming studies and really allow you to interact and uh, discuss with experts like Dirk and Jürgen on how innovative designs can be applied to benefit your clinical development program. So again, thank you everybody for your time and take care. Thank you.